A fundamental aspect of human nature that we can all relate to is that information alone isn't all that's needed to effectively modify behavior. So often we are well aware of what to do or avoid, yet we have a hard time implementing those things. Making lasting change is easier said than done, right? In this episode, we're going deep into certain aspects of the most complex thing that we know of in the entire universe, which is the human brain. Now, are there aliens somewhere out there or maybe even probing Earth right now with even more complex molecular bundles of neurology within their heads or wherever they might be on or within their bodies? I don't know. But maybe the Pentagon will finally fully disclose what's up about that soon enough. What we're going to delve into has to do with decision-making, which has a massive effect on how we manage our life approach. Because of tremendous advances and innovations in both technology and methodology, we now have fascinating insights into this subject that seems to reveal that it is actually more impulsive and related to unconscious aspects of our mental wiring than most of us intuitively believe. So when it comes to making decisions about and then following through with lifestyle approaches regarding what we consume and how much physical activity we engage in, the fact seems to be that it can't be boiled down to just issues related to self-discipline and self-control. And I think you know what I'm talking about. Don't let your dreams be dreams. Yesterday, you said tomorrow. So just do it. Make your dreams come true. Just do it! Okay, admittedly, that's a bit over the top, but the purpose of featuring that rant was to highlight how one approach some try to take is to just make up your mind, suck it up, gut it out, and get on with it. If you don't, you're a weak little wimp, and weak little wimps get nowhere. Only the mentally tough, gritty, and ferocious are going to thrive out there, so awaken your inner beast and start crushing it. Look, I am all about developing higher capacities for self-control and self-discipline as that conveys to every area of your life and learning how and then practicing seizing control of your thinking and then using your rational mind to govern your actions is an important aspect of living well. There is no way around having to make decisions that do require some grit, determination, and even a certain amount of pragmatism when it comes to so much of what we have to do to not just make things better, but to stay on that path. One of the first steps is being aware of how easy it is to be governed by feelings as opposed to sound, rational thinking. This is something we all have to grapple with at various times in our lives. Thinking with our feelings most often clouds our judgment and leads to compromised decisions. So learning how to detach from the pull of emotion-fueled reasoning that can lead to being more of a reactor as opposed to an in-control responder is a critical skill to practice and develop. And one of the tools for that mission is the use of data in the form of information and best practices others have had success employing. But a real challenge in regard to effectively changing and then managing one of the most important areas of personal wellness, our diet, has to do with what researchers in the overlapping fields of neuroscience and psychology have discovered. Namely, critical issues related to eating reside in the subconscious regions of our brains, 
And there are conflicts that can rage between the brain's conscious and unconscious functions that can explain, at least to some extent, why we overeat even when we don't want to. Much of what we're going to unpack in this episode is covered so expertly and understandably, even for those of us who aren't trained or credentialed experts in these fields, by Dr. Stefan Guillenet in his fantastic book, The Hungry Brain Outsmarting the Instincts That Make Us Overeat. See the show notes for links to the book and his website if you wish to go deeper into this subject. Hats off to Dr. Guillenet for his tremendous research and making the material, which can get a bit technical at times, so digestible. Pun intended and executed flawlessly. Thanks, Jill. I did pull off that pun pretty well, didn't I? Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty about brain function and how that relates to our decisions regarding diet, let's do a little background work. It's interesting to note that the term calorie was coined way back in the early 1800s and was used, and still is, by scientists to measure energy in all its different forms by the same metric as heat, light, motion, or the potential energy contained in chemical bonds. These chemical bonds are found in foods which release their potential energy as heat and light when burned, just like wood or gasoline. So you can view calories within the context of what can be referred to as the energy balance equation. Change in body energy equals energy in minus energy out. It's pretty simple. Energy enters the body as food, and it leaves as heat after we've used it to do metabolic housekeeping, pump blood and breathe, digest food, and move. We also use it to build muscle and bone. Any energy that's left over is stored as fat, or adipose tissue. Adipose tissue is the major energy storage site of the body, and it has an almost unlimited capacity. Now let's talk about the brain. The human brain accounts for roughly 20% of our total energy usage, even though it represents only around 2% of our body weight. What an energy hog. Deep within the brain are structures known as the basal ganglia that receive most of the incoming signals from other parts of the brain that are essentially bids for what particular actions we might engage in. The basal ganglia uses its control mechanisms to keep all behaviors in off mode until a specific action's bid has been selected, and the strongest bids are the only ones that are allowed to express themselves into action. And it is important to note that this process occurs beyond our conscious awareness. We only become aware of bids after they're selected. So think of the basal ganglia as a bodyguard that chooses which behavior gets access to the muscles and turns away the rest. How about an example? Suppose you have made the conscious decision to use your muscles to rake the lawn and are getting it done when, seemingly out of nowhere, a man wearing a clown suit makes eye contact and starts walking directly towards you. Yeah, that, that's the main theme from the It soundtrack. What are you going to do? Will you ignore the deranged clown man, continue raking and just hope he gets the message and moves on? Will you use the rake as a weapon to hold him at bay and, and repel him? 
Will you drop the rake and sprint right at him with arms open wide bellowing, finally, I get that hug? Or will you flee to safety? But how does this relate to eating? Eating is a complex behavior that requires coordinated decision-making on motivational, cognitive, and motor levels, which are the actions your body takes. However, the fundamental trigger that sets the whole show in motion is motivation, which can originate from several different brain regions. For example, the option generator that causes hunger is presumably different from the one that causes you to eat dessert after a monstrous meal and is also presumably different from the one that causes someone, and I am not making this up, to walk into Humpy's Great Alaskan Ale House in Anchorage, Alaska and accept the Kodiak Arrest Challenge. Three pounds of crab meat, 12 ounces worth of sausage, a two-ounce salmon cake, six ounces worth of potatoes and six ounces worth of vegetables all within an hour and all for a t-shirt get you some here's what happens when you eat food goes from your belly into the small intestine where specialized cells detect the nutrient content Signals related to the content are relayed to the brain, primarily via the vagus nerve, but your gut also interacts with other organs like your pancreas to release various hormones that have much to do with feelings of being full or satisfied with the meal so that you stop eating. And all of these complex computations happen beyond your conscious awareness, and the only information your conscious brain receives is whether or not you feel satisfied enough to stop eating, which isn't necessarily based on whether or not there are any cubic centimeters left to jam more stuff in. You see, a real problem for us today is that many of our modern processed foods have properties that don't stimulate these fullness circuits to the same degree as do whole foods. Foods like pizza, ice cream, cookies, candy, soda, and chips feature a combination of properties that make them less filling per calorie. Since most people use the sensation of fullness as a signal to stop eating, these foods allow us to blow past the point where we've had enough to satisfy our true calorie needs and continue with the binge fest. Back in the day, my own weekly cheat day used to be Saturday evenings when me and the boys, when our sons were kids, would order pizza or Chinese food, always both General Tso's, and chicken with mixed vegetables with egg rolls, and chowed down while watching our favorite show at the time, the artsy and often thought-provoking cartoon, Samurai Jack. After that was a movie during which I would eat, and I am not embellishing, an entire half gallon of Briar strawberry or mint chocolate chip ice cream, or... The following Ben and Jerry's triple header, a pint of Chunky Monkey, pint of Cherry Garcia, another pint of Chunky Monkey. Again, I'm not making any of that up. 
And the fascinating and troubling thing about this is that I hardly ever felt miserably full and wishing I hadn't done it. When I look back, I wonder how my innards didn't just congeal. But the good thing is that I finally came to my senses and took matters into my own hands and was able to escape that prison of shame and self-destruction. And if I can, so can anyone. But the question remains as to how did we in the affluent, technologically advanced, information-laden U.S. get to the point where these kind of things are very commonplace amongst ourselves and those we love? How did this happen? Let's take a quick historical flyover. Just over a century ago in the U.S., farmers made up 43% of the workforce. 70% of the jobs involved some sort of manual labor. Refrigerators, supermarkets, gas and electric stoves, washing machines, escalators, and electronic entertainment such as radios and of course TVs did not exist. Motor vehicle ownership was confined to engineers and the wealthy. Until about 1913, fewer than one out of 100 Americans had a car. Today there are eight for every 10 of us. Obtaining and preparing food at that time demanded effort. Life itself was exercise, weeding crops, baling hay, milking cows, kneading dough, washing laundry by hand, assembling things in a factory. As industry became increasingly automated, we became a more sedentary nation. As our way of life evolved, we became untethered from our actual caloric needs and started overeating to the point where obesity is now a serious health threat. In fact, data indicates that each year, one-third of older adults in the U.S. die of issues connected to being overweight, which includes cardiovascular disease and diabetes. So for most of human history, including the majority of the 20th century in the U.S., nearly everyone was able to approximately match their calorie intake to their needs without really even thinking much about it. So what is it that is pushing us to overeat? It used to be that being overweight or obese was most often attributed to a slow metabolic rate or mysterious hormonal imbalances or through some sort of psychoanalytical lens as something of a failure resulting from gluttony or insufficient willpower. What has emerged from ongoing research is that the culprit is a mismatch between the hardwired survival circuits in our brains and an environment that sends these circuits the wrong messages. Our physiology features incredibly sophisticated regulatory mechanisms for the control of body weight in humans, a powerful internal control system that is designed to regulate a person's appetite and body composition. There is little remaining doubt among researchers and even physicians that appetite and its effects on body composition are biologically regulated by non-conscious regions of the brain. And one of the key aspects of this is the understanding that genes play a huge role. In fact, research findings point to very strong evidence that genetic differences in brain function can account for why some people are fatter than others. So what, are we to be fatalists here? If I have fat genes, am I destined to be fat? 
Well, less than a century ago in the U.S., people carried the same genes we do today, yet few people struggled with weight issues. What has changed isn't our genes, it's our environment, our food, our cars, our jobs. This leads us to a critical conclusion about obesity genes. In most cases, they don't actually make us fat, they simply make us susceptible to a fattening environment. In the absence of that compromised environment, they rarely cause obesity. As Francis Collins, geneticist and director of the National Institutes of Health, is fond of saying, and I quote, genetics loads the gun and environment pulls the trigger, unquote. As counterintuitive as it might seem, what research has revealed is that food intake and body composition are not simply the result of conscious, voluntary decisions to eat less and exercise more. Are there elements of practicing self-control, self-discipline important? Absolutely, but it can't be reduced to just ramping up your willpower and won't power, as in I will not eat garbage and skip workouts. It's far more complicated than that. For example, we now know that appetite and body composition are, to a large extent, biological phenomena that are regulated by non-conscious parts of the brain. One of the key regulatory systems is referred to as the lipostat, think thermostat that sets your home's temperature, which is the mechanism that regulates your body composition based upon the cues it receives through our diet and overall lifestyle. The good news is that since the lipostat responds to the cues we give it, we can use this to our advantage. Even though much about our decision-making resides within the non-conscious areas of our brain, such as the hypothalamus, making conscious and deliberate decisions through systematic approaches or coaching, getting help, is incredibly valuable. In fact, my experience shows this to be not only crucial in the effort to make things better, but doable. But to be successful, it's important to understand, respect, and set out to get after it in light of what you're up against in terms of how the environment we inhabit is, in a word, compromised. And this is where the issues related to our environment and how it can jack up our internal regulating systems starts to come into better focus. Many researchers speculate that the regulatory mechanisms like the lipostat of the typical Westerner behave abnormally because it is designed for an environment that we no longer inhabit. We don't have to travel by caloric expending means to work at jobs that consist of heavy-duty manual labor and then actually work to gather and prepare meals. In today's environment of plentiful, tasty, refined, calorie-dense food, low physical activity requirements, and other unnatural characteristics, these systems essentially misfire, driving many of us to overeat. And this misfiring may have something to do with inflammation in the hypothalamus that can cause resistance to certain molecules such as leptin and insulin that trigger proper responses, keeping our weight and body composition closer to healthy levels. One study by University of Washington researcher Ellen Schur, during which she used MRI scans of participants' brains, showed that the more signs of damage found in a person's hypothalamus, the more likely he was to have obesity or be overweight. 
Her conclusion was that the food we eat may cause damage in areas of the brain that we need to regulate our body weight and our appetite as well as our blood sugar. This mild form of brain damage could be contributing to our expanding waistlines. Perhaps even worse is that not only do repeated bouts of overeating make us fat, they make our bodies want to stay fat. Why would our bodies want to stay fat even though our bodies should want what's best to enable us to survive and thrive, which is relative leanness and healthier tissues? Well, again, with our internal regulatory systems getting tampered with. And one of the hormones that the modern food landscape has set loose at abnormally high levels to wreak havoc is... Dopamine. One common fallacy characterizes dopamine as the pleasure chemical that is responsible for causing the neurochemical rush that makes us feel really good when we win a contest or race, get a bunch of likes or retweets or eat chocolate. But the fact is that dopamine release doesn't correspond very well with the experience of pleasure, which is more related to a class of chemicals called endorphins that are often released simultaneously. Dopamine really is the learning chemical rather than the pleasure chemical. When something good happens, the brain increases the likelihood that the pattern of brain activity that immediately preceded the event will recur down the line. And this reinforcement, both positive and negative, shapes all of the decision-making processes required for effective goal-directed behaviors. The process of reinforcement operates completely outside our conscious awareness. For it to occur, there has to be a teaching signal that changes the activity of loops in parts of the brain based upon experience such that good responses are reinforced and bad ones are discarded. And most researchers are convinced that this teaching signal is dopamine. When dopamine reaches very high levels, it reinforces behaviors so strongly that they can take priority over natural, constructive behaviors. This is, by the way, the essence of addiction. It makes sense, then, that every addictive drug either increases dopamine levels or stimulates the same signaling pathway in a different manner. Even relatively benign habit-forming drugs, such as caffeine, seem to act on the same pathway. And how this relates to our diet has to do with particular foods or formulations of food items that trigger addiction-like behavior by opening those dopamine valves. As it turns out, people don't become addicted to celery or lentils. Instead, people are drawn to foods containing high concentrations of sugar, refined carbs, fats, salt, and caffeine. But these food substances may not be addictive until they are processed, extracted, highly refined, and concentrated by modern industrial processes. The more concentrated they are, the more dopamine they release, which reinforces the behavior that brings one closer to addiction. The accessibility, in terms of both availability and affordability, of calorie-dense, highly rewarding foods favors overeating and weight gain, not just because we passively overeat it, but also because it messes with those internal control mechanisms that we can't just consciously switch on and off. 
What makes this so alarming is that modern food technology has allowed us to maximize the reinforcing qualities of food, making it far more seductive than ever before in human history. The food industry competes fiercely for your stomach share by pushing your food reward buttons, trying to turn you into a repeat customer. And let's face it, unprocessed, low-calorie foods are neither very profitable to sell nor particularly compelling to consumers. Food cues are most effective when they predict highly rewarding foods rich in fat, sugar, starch, salt, and other reinforcing properties. And these are the foods that appear most often in advertisements. Take one of the go-to foods for comfort and enjoyment for countless people chocolate. Chocolate is a prime example of how modern foods have been processed and manipulated such that their reinforcing properties are so strong. The seeds of the cacao tree, a plant native to tropical South America, are naturally extremely calorie dense due to their high fat content. When fermented, roasted, and ground into a paste, these seeds become chocolate, a magical substance that's solid at room temperature and melts in the mouth. To mask the naturally bitter flavor, we add refined sugar and sometimes dairy products. A quick aside on sugar. It used to be that there were only two sources of sweetness for most of human history honey and fruit, and the costs associated with adding the sugar from those substances to other foods was so expensive that only the wealthy had regular access to it. But we gradually figured out how to extract pure sugar from beets, sugarcane, and then cornstarch. And thanks to government-subsidized corn, high-fructose corn syrup is so cheap that food manufacturers can use it to beef up the reward value of their foods at virtually no cost, tickling the brain circuits that make us reach for all those sugar-laden items in most aisles or checkout counters of a typical large-chain supermarket. And while we're at it, let's, let's talk about fat for a moment. Added fats are another highly effective way to rev up the brain's reward circuits. Isolated fats, such as soybean oil, canola oil, and butter, increase the calorie density and reward value of foods at little additional cost, which is why they're used liberally in commercially prepared foods, including restaurant meals. Rather than getting our fat from whole foods like meat, dairy, nuts, and plants, such as avocados and chickpeas, that's where hummus comes from, we now get it primarily from oils that are mechanically and chemically extracted from seeds. These liquid oils are cheap and convenient, which is obviously an attractive way to add high reward components to foods that would otherwise contain little fat, creating such food reward masterpieces as French fries and Doritos. And our food reward system goes hyper bonkers when high combinations of concentrated sugar and fat are in the same food, which is a pairing that hardly ever occurs in nature. This mismatch seems to be a situation that our brains aren't well equipped to handle. So going back to chocoholism, the calorie density, fat content, carb content, and sweet taste of your typical chocolate treat is a powerfully reinforcing combination. And that doesn't even take into consideration the characteristic of chocolate that makes it one of the kings of cravings, which is the habit-forming drug called theobromine. 
Theobromine is a mild stimulant that is moderately reinforcing, like its cousin caffeine. So all of these qualities together in one package can foster addictive-like behavior when it comes to encounters with candy bars, M&Ms, or Hershey's Kisses. Industrialization has gone far beyond simply increasing the efficiency of agriculture. It has profoundly transformed food processing, distribution, and preparation. Advances in food technology and the increasing influence of the food industry are behind the shift in modern diets that are typical around the world that has misaligned our brains and bodies which, according to many researchers, has led to the rise of lifestyle-related disorders such as coronary heart disease, diabetes, and obesity in many industrialized nations. Now, one more hormone to mention briefly before moving on, and that's cortisol. Cortisol is the stress hormone that acts as your body's built-in alarm system. It works with certain parts of your brain to control your mood, motivation and fear and is best known for helping fuel your body's fight or flight instinct in a crisis like when that clown man comes walking across your lawn but cortisol plays an important role in a number of things your body does for example it's involved in the following management of how your body uses carbs fats and proteins reduction of inflammation regulating blood pressure Increasing blood sugar when needed. Regulation of sleep-wake cycles. Boosts energy so you can handle stress and restores balance afterward. So if your cortisol levels are off, then many high-degree functions are affected. For instance, too much cortisol can interfere with the signaling pathways in the hypothalamus, which can result in increased levels of hunger when there is no calorie deficit and disrupt the most regenerative state you can be in every day, which is deep sleep. And that one detail alone sets in motion a cascade of challenges to overall health and well-being. Yet there's another reason why some of us overeat when we're stressed, and research is increasingly suggesting that it could be important. High-reward foods, which are usually junk foods, simply make us feel better emotionally. Almost everyone can relate to having certain go-to foods that pick us up or bring joy when in the midst of a challenging season. Studies seem to show that stress can have a profound effect on both the types and amounts of food we eat. Depending on your genetic predispositions, calorie intake can go up or down during stress. Yet it is fairly universally the case that most of us gravitate toward calorie-dense, comfort foods as a means of self-medicating stress, which serves to dampen the activity of our own regulatory systems. All of this underscores just how important it is to manage stress levels. A bit more on that shortly. Let's do one more brief pass and wrap things up on the issues that make our modern food supply environment so challenging before getting into some tactics on how to effectively deal with this reality. We in affluent industrialized cultures are steeped in a vast abundance of food choices, so much of which are professionally crafted to maximize reward value with formulations that rarely are found in nature. Because of how our brains are wired, we don't form celery habits. 
Seriously, when's the last time one of your friends confided in you that he's overwhelmed by cravings for asparagus or cauliflower? We form pizza, cookie, and Popeye's fried chicken habits. These are the foods that make us want to eat more of them, eventually establishing deeply ingrained eating patterns that are hard to change. What is in essence a perpetual buffet that is engineered to disrupt eating patterns regulated by our body's amazingly efficient internal controls is suppressing the signal that tells us we are full and should stop hitting that late night drive through One of the more interesting points from Dr. Guillenet's book was his explanation of how our digestive and metabolic functions follow a pattern that features a certain synchronicity. One of the risks modern diets pose is to desynchronize the clocks in our intestine, liver, pancreas, and other organs from one another, which can compromise the regulation these very important functions provide. What would normally be a beautiful, harmonious performance turns into an out-of-tune cacophony that researchers refer to as circadian desynchrony. By the way, that would be an awesome name for a heavy metal rock band. And I checked and it's still available, so knock yourself out if you're into producing headbanging music and you're looking for a cool name. So what are you to do in light of the fact that the outputs of your brain, including your appetite and eating behaviors, are determined by the input cues it receives and the environment you're inhabiting happens to be geared toward providing the wrong cues? And one other wild card to throw into the mix is that neuroscientists confirm that every person's brain has a unique genetic blueprint which can manifest in varying interactions with food from one person to the next. Fact is, there are some very fortunate people among us who are naturally resistant to overeating even in a very fattening food environment. You've seen foodies who can be gourmet cooks or even pastry chefs who do not succumb to the temptation to eat or overeat and remain lean and healthy but most of us are susceptible. And by the way, these differences pertaining to the ability to suppress or ignore basic urges that are beyond conscious control, which is what we commonly consider self-control, go beyond just the realms of eating habits. So be careful to practice some mercy and refrain from judging others or even yourself for not having that indestructible, impenetrable, ironclad will that you or your hero has. There are some genetics at play in all of this. But then again, our genetic makeup is just a predisposition, not an inevitable fate. Our ancestors just four generations ago carried the same genes we do, yet they rarely developed obesity because they lived in a different context that provided profoundly different cues to the brain and body. And I am here to tell you that you can improve upon or enhance your level of self-control and self-discipline. One of the keys that I mentioned routinely, even did so earlier, is how important it is to take measures to develop your capacities to take command of your thinking. 
Your rational thinking mind is the boss, not your emotions and not your body. We can all get better at that. Let's wrap this up with what Dr. Guillenet offers as six keys that can serve as strategies to outsmart the instincts driving us to overeat. Number one, fix your food environment. We may have a hard time fighting our non-conscious urges to eat tasty, calorie-rich foods when they're right in front of us, but with a little planning and structure, we can succeed. Taking measures to enhance self-control is always helpful, but wisdom, which is the art of living well, leads to calm, rational, and even tactical planning that very often negates the need to rely solely on an iron will. And in this context, it is a wise move to exert some control over the food cues in your personal spaces to the best of your ability. What are some action steps? Reduce your exposure to potentially harmful food cues by making it a little more difficult to eat throughout the day. Even effort barriers as small as having to open a cabinet, twist off a lid, peel an orange, or shell nuts can make the difference between eating the right amount and overeating. Keeping easy, tempting foods in plain sight, such as an open bag of chips or box of donuts, is like baiting your own trap. Stock your pantry and fridge with whole, clean foods that are closer to their natural state than the heavily processed items that are so bountiful in a typical grocery market. Number two, manage your appetite. The best way to do this is to choose foods that send strong fullness signals to the brain but contain a moderate amount of calories. These are foods that combine to render your overall diet as one characterized as lower calorie density, moderate palatability or tastiness, and are higher in protein, fiber, and good fats. Not surprisingly, we get that by opting for fresh meat and seafood, veggies, potatoes and sweet potatoes, beans, lentils, fresh fruit, oatmeal, avocado, yogurt, eggs, and hummus. Having those types of food in supply means that's what you're going to eat. Not too complicated, is it? Quick side point. This basic protocol applies regardless of the specific diet plan you adopt. And what I mean here is that omnivores, those of us who eat both plant-based and animal-sourced foods, which includes the very popular paleo and short-term goal-oriented approaches such as the keto diet, and vegetarians, vegans alike, should pay keen attention to the composition of their foods. Now, some apologists for vegetarianism, veganism may contend that their approach is already well-suited for that, which in some ways might be accurate, but there are plenty of plant-based foods that may meet the no animal products qualifications that nonetheless compromise our internal signaling systems. Number three, beware of food reward. We've covered how high-reward foods tend to increase our food intake and result in gains in weight and body fat percentage, while lower-reward foods tend to have the opposite effect. Most of us can identify with having slammed a meat-and-potatoes meal and felt stuffed, only to grow another stomach to accommodate that chocolate fudge brownie topped with vanilla ice cream once the dessert menu rolls out. Why does this happen? because our regulatory systems are compromised and aren't getting it done. 
A weight management hack to head this off isn't something you'll typically find in a diet book. Eat simple foods that are closer to their natural states. This includes dispensing with the notion that the only way to enjoy your day-in, day-out diet is with a wide variety of exciting and fun-to-eat foods. The reason you'll rarely find it in a diet book is that lower-reward food is not very motivating. It doesn't get us excited about a diet, and it doesn't make books fly off the shelves. We want to hear that we can lose weight while eating the most delicious food of our lives in the weight loss industry, which is estimated to rake in upwards of $70 billion annually, is more than happy to indulge us. A diet that's lower in reward value will control appetite and reduce body fat more effectively than one that's high in reward value. The trick, as with all eating plans, is sticking with it which underscores the importance of designing an approach you can live with for the long haul. Number four, make sleep a priority. Do not underestimate just how important sleep is in regard to overall health and well-being. It is the most regenerative state we can be in as it's when the brain clears waste products that accumulate during the day as a result of normal metabolism. It gently remodels itself, reinforcing important connections and pruning unimportant ones. Restorative sleep serves as an important cue for the brain's regulatory systems that has a major impact on both cognitive performance and the non-conscious functions we've covered. Also, Lack of quality sleep increases the reward system's responsiveness to food cues, which often leads to overeating. Number five, move your body. Physical activity may help maintain the lipostat, that regulatory mechanism in the brain, which encourages a naturally lower level of body fat in the long run. It also stimulates various classes of hormones that not only enhance mood, but actually improve cognitive function. The most important thing to remember about exercise, whatever your preferred activity or activities, is simply to be consistent and hit it every day if possible. Of course, this might mean mixing it up a bit to lessen the potential for certain types of overuse injuries. And exercise can also be of tremendous benefit in the realm of what is the next key. Number six. Manage your stress levels. Psychological and emotional stress can amp up cortisol levels, and we covered how this, much like inflated levels of dopamine, compromises the function of critical internal control mechanisms that help manage appetite and body composition. Stress also shifts our eating preferences toward comfort food, which almost always has the characteristics that we've seen disrupt those regulating systems and also serves to dampen the activity of the stress response system, which makes us feel better. But there are far more life-giving ways to put a damper on that stress response system and feel better. Prayer and meditation are activities that have been practiced throughout all of human history, and clinical studies have shown the effectiveness in terms of not just stress management, but overall brain enhancement. 
check the archives of the animated podcast for the quick shot episode from November of 2019 entitled Prayer and Meditation as Legit Brain Enhancing Activities, which is just four minutes long, for some ideas on that front. Being more others-focused by intentionally practicing humility and then taking that into the community as a volunteer and a helper can be another powerful stress eradicator. And, like just mentioned in number five, hit the go button and engage in routine, focused exertion at the gym, in the studio, in the garden, or around your neighborhood. That is a very helpful strategy when it comes to managing stress. Push your body, move your body, concentrate on your physical well-being. That helps. Thanks for listening. Really appreciate you spending time with me during this episode and hope you've gained some insights and have been encouraged by what we've covered. Again, thanks to Dr. Guiana for providing such a wealth of usable information. Just keep in mind, yes, your rational thinking mind that you can make and then follow through with decisions that will make your life better and you better at life. It really does start with a decision or even a set of many decisions. If you're struggling with feeling as if it's too hard or you've tried it before and it didn't work, take the step of trying to detach from those feelings and emotions and believe that you can indeed correct course. You can make decisions that put you on the path and keep you heading in the right direction. And there are those in your life who care, want what's best for you, and are willing to help. I hope that I am just one of the helpful voices throwing some wind into your sails. I encourage you to be willing to lay aside your ego, humble yourself, and submit to some help when it comes to your mission of improving things in your life. Of course, no one can fix our lives for us, but taking ownership of things often involves seeking out and submitting to some coaching and encouragement from others. There is hope. You have access to what you need to improve your position. So just get after it. Until next time, peace to you and yours.